And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. On this episode, we're talking to Bobby Corrala about the win over Utah, and then we'll get into some defense talk. Son of Slovenia, cool as hell. He scores the ball and he rebounds well. Don't fight the future, honey. Don't fight the future. The future is Luca. The timing sucks cause the Mavs are ass But did you see his Nola pass? Whoa! Don't fight the future, honey Don't fight the future The future is Luca. Welcome to 77 Minutes, a Dallas Mavericks podcast Part of the Athletic Podcast Network I'm Tim Cato, I ride and talk about the Mavericks We've got Mike Pellucci, the unofficial, uh, official, official, you're an official co-host I think so. I'll, I'll put it on the Twitter yeah. bio later. Uh, editor yeah. of the person writing about the Dallas Mavericks. Sometimes write about the Dallas Mavericks myself. I mean, to me, you're only a podcast host, so I mean, I no, guess that's fair. Uh, you I've do crossed some editing on the side. I've crossed yeah. over. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and then we got we got Bobby Carolla, and he is most known for being a Crystal Palace fan, um, which is why we brought him on to the world's only Crystal Palace podcast. That's Crystal Palace of the UK Premier League. How are you doing, Bobby? Oh, gentlemen, I am so pumped to talk about the Mavs for the next 77 minutes. I'm so excited that you invited me onto the podcast. And one of the big reasons, Tim, that I do support Crystal Palace is because Palace rhymes with Dallas. I'm all about wordplay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the Eagles are, are definitely right there when it comes to, uh, to rhymes and all sorts of soccer fun. Good times. If there were other Dallas Mavericks podcasts, which there aren't, but if there were and Bobby hosted them, uh, you should listen to them because he is fantastic over with the Dallas Mavericks. Very smart guy, front of the program. We wanted to make sure we had him on here, um, especially because you guys hear our takes all the time, but you don't hear Bobby's takes all the time. And he is one of the smartest Mavs minds out there. So we're, we're very lucky to have him with us today. Oh, those are kind words, Mike. And uh, if I can just interrupt Tim real quick, uh, Mike, I wish you wrote about the Mavs more because uh, you're you and Tim are the only two Mavs writers on the internet, and uh, I, oh. I really value your contributions in that department as well. Well, thank you, sir. Hey, man, we don't want to be. We're actively <laughs> begging for more people to write about the Mavericks. So, Saw if anybody out ship. there, if any anyone, any and all. So. Now, because right now, I mean, I don't even write as much as I used to. So really, it's just Tim most of the time. But do you really want Tim Cato to be the only writer about the Dallas Mavericks? You don't. No. Not no. deep down, you don't. I, I'm positive there are people listening who's like, I don't want Tim Cato to write about the Mavericks uh, ever. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> hey, so let's talk about the, the game, the win against Utah, which happened Monday night. Uh, we were recording Tuesday afternoon. Uh, I would... I would think that most people will listen to this before Wednesday's game. So this will still be fresh and current. Um, I, I don't want to talk about, you know, just the, the beat by beat dynamics of the game. What I thought was most interesting about the win uh, was just that it, it's, it's what a playoff series is going to look like. Um, obviously without the, the adjustments uh, without the game by game 
you know, matchup strategy uh, finagling that that you always get, especially when you have two coaches like Rick Carlisle and, and Quinn Snyder or Rick Carlisle and any, you know, really reputable playoff coach. But but I think with the defense, it, it definitely showed up in, in that ways. I thought the the whistle was a uh, pretty much on the on the let guys play side. And that tends to be how the playoffs get. And just generally, it, it did give me a little bit of a of a playoff vibe, whether Dallas ends up in a series against Utah, which I think would be fun, or whether it's somebody else or, or you know, really any any of these top six seed uh, seeded teams in the Western Conference, uh, which we've kind of broken down the Western Conference into, uh, I think at this point, there's there's the top six. Um, Dallas is the is the one kind of pushing on that on that uh into that six. And uh, I think some people would probably uh, shy away from including them just yet. But I'm comfortable doing it, just following this team as closely as I as I do, and seeing how they've done in the past uh, few weeks. So, yeah, that's a that's a rambling, uh, non-question, Bobby Carella. So I will I will cap it with a with a much more concise one. Did it did it have playoff vibes? And do you think that's what we're going to see? Is that the style of game we're going to see in the postseason? Uh, it did feel very playoffy, and kind of some of the. I know you said that like minus like the chess match element that is present in the playoffs certainly, um, but last night I think Royce O'Neal mirrored Luca's minutes. Uh, he was not on the floor when Luca wasn't, and he was not on the bench when Luca was in the game. Uh, and I'm pretty sure Maxi was on the floor every second that Rudy Gobert was. And now Dallas only played eight guys, I think, and so there was a pretty good chance Maxi was on the floor any second of the game, but. Um, there was some mirroring going on, and there were some very interesting matchups. Um, Dallas was switching everything, which is something that you do see in the playoffs, and they were playing very small, uh, relatively at least, which is, again, something you see in the playoffs. Of course, part of that was out of necessity because Chris uh, Porzingis wasn't playing, but it was a very high-level game. Quinn Snyder is a tactical mastermind, and he and Rick Carlisle competing against one another is just like a joy to watch uh, from an X's and O's standpoint. And Utah, you know, I think they play like almost an idealized turbo loaded version of how the Mavs want to play. Um, Dallas doesn't really have anybody that can imitate Rudy Gobert, but Utah doesn't have anybody that can imitate KP. So they kind of play this five out, four and a half out style offense the best way that both of these teams can. But watching Utah play is like watching the Mavs play whenever they're firing on all cylinders, which is just spread the floor screen and roll to create a favorable mismatch and then drive and kick. And if it's not there, put the ball on the floor, kick again, kick again, just keep working to find open shots. Um, and Dallas did a really good job last night of taking away whatever the easiest thing was that Utah was looking for. So if that was the initial kick out, they were scrambling to that guy, making him put it on the floor, and then they were running into traffic in the lane. They were just making Utah make a lot of extra passes. And even when Utah was getting offensive rebounds, I thought they did a really good job of hugging shooters, not letting guys slip open. Really, the only time Utah was able to create easy shots was in transition. Uh, so a really spirited defensive effort from Dallas, and it's that kind of intensity that they're going to have to play with in order to compete in the playoffs. You know, we know they can score. They've done it for two years now and three years with Luka. Um, but, you know, getting stops is something that was a chore for them last season in the playoffs against the Clippers. They were able to do it against Utah. Some of it was make or miss, I think. You know, I don't want to be too big, too big of a wet blanket, but the encouraging thing was they made Utah work hard for even the, the shots that they wanted to take, and they did a really good job of containing Donovan Mitchell, making him take 20-foot shots and not letting him get all the way to the rim. So all around, I thought it was just like a really, 
really high level game plan by the Mavs coaching staff playoff caliber rotation like only six guys scored which is pretty playoffy and uh also uh just you know really really kind of a fierce i guess is the word defensive effort every rebound was a war and so dallas definitely came to play so it was it was i i guess very uplifting and encouraging to see them put that much effort into that end of the floor yeah i i think that's all that's all really smart stuff and it's all it was fascinating to watch. It was difficult to, for me personally to try and temper a lot of, like you said, there are a lot of micro trends from this game in terms of rotations, in terms of strategy, in terms of matchups that you could extrapolate. But then you have the other side of this that made this such a weird game. And, and Tim, you know, you wrote about it right off the top in your piece this morning for a reason of that was some extreme make or miss going on in terms of Utah hitting 27% for three, Dallas hitting 47% from three. And add increased stops, Porzingis not being there. And so it's kind of, I'm left watching this going, what is what is actionable, what is not? What do I take from this and what is not? And the biggest thing for me isn't necessarily what I saw. It's sort of that, you know, I, I didn't see anything last night that I'm going, okay, I could extrapolate this over a seven-game series. I, I don't know if there's a lot of that there. But what I did see was just the idea of, you know, it's the old scouting adage, right? You know, you whenever somebody sees a player, Maybe that player does something only once, but you're like, you know what? If I saw this dude do it one time, I can dream on that and I can draft this guy and I can hope that he becomes it consistently. And the performance I saw from Dorian Finney-Smith last night made me think, you know what? We're not getting that from Dorian every night. You know, there are only a handful of performances from Dorian that really do mirror this. But if Utah is the opponent Dallas finds their way into playing somewhere in the postseason, the fact that we have seen Dorian and Finney-Smith make them pay um, – from beyond the arc because there are absolutely teams that will always leave Dorian free and just say, all right, beat us, beat us with those open threes. The fact that we've seen Dorian have a game like last night when Porzingis is out, it lets, you know, when you see, I mean, I think it's what, 76 combined points from Finney Smith, Richardson, Hardaway, and Brunson. That's, you know, the margin of error for this team right now, we talked about this on the podcast, Right now, to win a post postseason series, the margin of error is small. You need a lot of things to go right, and you assume Luca is going to be playing at a high level because he's Luca. You need at least one or two other things to happen. One, you got to have Porzingis playing at peak or near peak, Kristaps Porzingis. Or two, and this is what you had last night, all the role players show up. If you have that and you have Doncic, it shows you that yeah, okay, even the best team in the league right now, Dallas can hang with them, not just hang with them, but beat them. So. Are there specific notes from last night that I'm thinking will show up a ton over a seven-game series? Me personally, no. But I've seen that, okay, in a playoff-type feel, in a big regular season matchup, and these guys know it. They know how good Utah is. Playing without Kristaps Porzingis, all of the role players step up. And that shows me that these guys are ready for prime time. Yeah, you know, Dorian's other high-scoring game in his career, because I think he's only scored 20 points like three times. But his career high is 27. That was in the bubble last year against Milwaukee, who has Brooke Lopez and Lopez was defending Finney Smith, or I guess really not defending Finney Smith, the same way that Gobert was last night, which is just not guarding him at all. And there were two plays last night that Finney Smith made that really stood out to me. The made threes were cool, but we saw what happens whenever he does make a couple threes, which is the big man is going to try and cheat a little bit out further on him, or just say like, you know what, F this, I'm going to go out and block his three or whatever. Gobert did that twice. He challenged Finney Smith twice. The first time, Finney Smith drove left, finished left-handed floater over Gobert in the lane. A really, really nice finish. And then another time in the second half, Gobert closed out way too hard. Finney Smith just took one dribble and threw it down, just dunked it. And so that was really good to see, too, that not only you know can he make a couple shots, but 
if the big guy is going to overreact to him making a couple shots, then he does have the wherewithal to put the ball on the floor and finish at the rim, which is really important because if you can only shoot or if you can only finish at the rim, then you're really easy to guard in a playoff series. But if he can do both, especially in the same game, then that's whenever you can really kind of just throw a huge wrench into their game plan. Do you think that that like earworms into Gobert's brain per se? Do you think that that is something that you know he does it once twice three times it will legitimately affect how utah you know let's and again we're talking hypothetical if in a playoff series but but you know like would it affect how gobert starts defending or, or continues to defend over the course of the rest of a game or several games or something like that uh because or, or do you think that gobert is so trained on what he wants to do that he's able to brush aside a moment or two where he gets beat and say that's four points in the grand scheme of things that's you know not the end of the world Ooh, that's a good question. You know, I think uh, in a playoff series, Utah probably leaves Finney Smith open the whole time, or at, at least like two games in a row. Can you do it? Can you do it twice? Right. In a regular season game, I think your natural tendency is to just overreact and just say, all right, whatever. You know, if he can beat me off the dribble, let him, let him beat me off the dribble. But in a playoff series, game after game after game after game, can he do the same thing over and over again? You know, like the Clippers were kind of defending Maxi Kleba that way last season in the playoffs, you know, just giving him open shots. And unfortunately, he wasn't able to deliver. Now, had he made some of those shots, I guess we would have had a little data to draw from. But uh, we just don't have enough data and experience and film on how teams will defend Dallas, a healthy Dallas in a playoff series. I mean, last night they didn't even have Porzingis. Like, I don't know what Utah would have done had KP played in that game. So, uh, we'll see, but yeah, I mean, it's all speculation, but I think in a playoff series, they would still make Finney Smith beat them two or three times in a row before they actually change anything. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? I think it's probably right. I mean, it's Utah's too good to panic like that. Quinn Snyder's too good to panic. Rudy Gobert's too good to panic. And like you pointed out, we don't have a lot of precedent for a Dorian doing something like this. We have enough to show that he can, but yeah, I think that, I think the smart play over the, over the long haul of a series, which Utah knows, you know, nothing is going to happen between now and the end of the regular season for Dallas to have home court in this series if it happens, right? So Utah knows it's on our turf. We are the team with the advantage throughout. Don't play scared. Um, so yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree with you. I think they're probably going to make Dallas prove that they can do this. And the burden of proof is on Dorian or, you know, hey, if it's, if it's a different role player, if it's the burden of proof is on Josh Richardson, if he starts off hot in a few games, whoever it is in the supporting cast, I don't think Utah is going to start changing their game plan, especially if we have a healthy Kristaps Porzingis in the lineup, because there's enough to contend with just dealing with Doncic and Porzingis to start worrying about the role players. But the flip side is if one or two of these guys really start stepping up consistently, that's how you steal a series is if you start forcing Utah to think about things that are not the main things, because then if you give even an ounce less of attention to Luka Doncic. That's where he burns you. So the burden of proof in a lot of ways is on these role players. And this is something that Tim and I have talked a lot about, Bobby. And I'm curious about your thoughts here. You know, our thought process for a lot of the year has been they have the guy who clearly can be the best guy. They have the guy who, when he's at his best, can be the second best guy. Are there the guys here who could be more than the fifth or maybe the fourth guy? Do you trust? How many guys in this supporting cast do you trust come the postseason? And what do you reasonably expect them to do? How, you know, based on what the roster is right now, how much, how high do you think the ceiling could be for this Mavericks team? Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, after Luka and KP, Jalen Brunson, probably the third most consistent guy, maybe even the second most consistent guy, you know, because KP's had his fair share of struggles. But what Brunson can do in a playoff series is score from all three levels, right? Like what do you, if you're the opponent, what do you want to take away from Brunson? Like, Probably his left hand, but he can drive right. So do you let him pull up from 18? Because like, that's like his sweet spot. Do you want to take away the drives to the rim? Because otherwise he'll just you know, pull up from 20 or pull up from three. So I feel like he is a, a very valuable asset in that way. And uh, he didn't play against the Clippers last season either. You know, in that playoff series, Dallas was really, really hurting for shot creation, especially after KP went down. They didn't have Brunson. So I'm really excited to see what he can do in the playoffs, assuming, of course, they can make it to a series. Brunson also just wasn't as good last season. He's he's oh, improved yeah, so yeah, much yeah. this year. Mm, yeah. Um, I feel like Hardaway's improved a little bit too. And I guess, I mean, we can talk later about some of the things that he's improved at, but he just feels more dynamic off the dribble, whether it's pulling up from three uh, or driving all the way to the rim. Like he's shooting 53% on drives this season. He was 46% on drives last year. Now, it's not like he does it 25 times a game or anything like Luka does, but he still does it enough to where that's like a notable improvement. And I feel like if you narrow that down to like the last two months or so, he looks he just looks much more explosive, a lot more dunks, a lot more stuff at the basket. So, you know, that's four guys that can really just – all of those guys can give you 25 basically any given night. And beyond that, Maxi, Dorian Finney-Smith, you know, like Willie Cauley-Stein, Dwight Powell, like – I don't know what you can expect from them. I guess it depends on the opposing personnel. But like, if it's going to be a team like Utah or the Clippers, who have Gobert, Zubats, you know, one of some of these teams that have these big centers, Denver with Jokic, it's really hard to put two guys on Luka in the pick and roll because like Gobert is a, one of the best defenders of all time. But do you really want him defending in space in a four on three situation? or like Zubats in space in a four on three, like it's just a really tr- dicey game, especially whenever you have KP who can shoot it from 35, you know, trailing the play. So like Dallas can just really force you into uncomfortable positions because Luka is so good that I feel like it makes all those other guys' jobs easier, but we just don't have, again, because half of that series last year against the Clippers, KP was out and 100% of it, Jalen Brunson was out. I just, I don't feel confident necessarily saying this take because uh we just haven't seen it before but that's what i'm projecting at least is that you know if brunson and hardaway can give you a fair amount of shot creation off the bench in a series or maybe even in the starting lineup if you have to make adjustments or whatever then you can get by and there is enough talent 
especially if they can sustain what they're doing on defense lately because they have been playing at such a high level despite relative you know easing up of competition yeah i think against best teams you're you're asking hardaway and brunson and then the role players behind that you know the the more cogs in the machines not necessarily expected to be you know high level scorers or or volume scorers you're asking you're you're asking them against the best teams to do things they they're capable of doing i, I still think as we've said multiple times on, on this podcast on uh, you know in general you're asking them a bit too much and you know, I, I think that saying, okay, we're going to get 30 and 25 from Luca and KP, and then one of Hardaway or Brunson has to go for 25 because that's, you know, kind of how you balance out the scoring. But, but they have shown they can do that. And that's why, you know, I, I do think Dallas has a chance in a series against I, any Western Conference team except maybe the Lakers. I, I'd have to think more about that to, to really crack down on, you know, who would I just say, you know, would I, would I say just no, you know, they're not going to beat this team. But, but I, I, I do think that they've, you know, these players have shown over and over again uh, that, that they are capable of rising to the occasion. It's just the problem is that, that we're still describing it as rising to the occasion, not, you know, this is just a baseline of what is, what's expected from these players. Um, again, not a bad place to be in. And we're talking about the Mavericks playing the top, you know, three, four, teams in the Western Conference, you know, I guess the the top five, six teams just around the league, you know, these are the same questions. But if we're framing it specifically around a playoff series, I, I think that is that is the one area where, where Dallas is still just a, a half step behind being a a true proper contender. Uh, like you said, I think one of the big reasons is the defense that that makes me feel more comfortable saying they're only a half step behind. It, it has been legitimately good, which is wild considering how bad it was for the entire month of February. Yeah, I mean, what happened during that snowstorm? Like, what, what did they do? <laughs> team retreat, team bonding. Team I bonding mean, over Zoom. Oh, my God. It's right, because, because it, everything I keep hearing or I keep seeing, and this is a totally reasonable way to think. It's, oh, the team had COVID, the, the COVID outbreak. The players came back. Things got better. No, they did not. And I'm not even factoring in a week of, of people getting back up to conditioning. It was atrocious. The entire month of... Uh, the entire month of February was awful defensively, just awful basketball, you know, just points given up all over the place. Uh, I do think the snowstorm and and Porzingis starting to look physically like himself again. Uh, I think that if I had to point to a turning point, um, that would be it. But it, but it's more than that. You know, it wasn't just Porzingis that was getting, you know, routinely roasted. There was a lot of team mistakes all over the place. Maybe it was COVID. You know, that, that is, it, it's a respiratory illness. People are just, you know, it takes a while to com- come back from. Like, that is a legitimate excuse. There's no way to prove it, but but that is a legitimate uh, explanation for why, you know, even when the team was together, they looked, you know, they looked like they they did in March, which was just uh, much better in, in every possible way than, than they did in February. But, I mean, that's my best guess for it, because clearly what's been happening over the the past weeks is, you know, I think the team that uh, naturally they expected to be with all the talk of, of how this offseason was all about improving the defense. I mean, have you noticed any like tactical changes? Like, are they doing anything different? It feels like KP stepping a little further out on ball screens. But like last night, for example, Utah shot 25 percent or whatever on threes. And it was still the highest offensive rating in a game against the Mavs since Orlando shot like 90% on threes two weeks ago or a month ago or whenever that was. Like Dallas has been pretty solid on defense despite at times opponents, you know, shooting the crap out of the ball or like Utah, you know, they didn't hit any threes, but they couldn't miss any twos. But like, have they changed anything or is it just they're just trying harder? I mean, what's, what's the deal? Yeah, I haven't seen, you know, I don't, I don't. 
I don't feel like I'm looking at a different team tactically or scheme-wise. Uh, I do feel like some of the individual players are uh, much better. Uh, it, it, certainly beyond Porzingis, I think Luca is more consistently focused defensively. Uh, I think he has been a good defender when he wants to be, uh, really since the bubble last year. But I, I think it's happening more often and more consistently in that on that end. Uh, he was great against Utah, I thought. Uh, maybe, maybe except for one instance where he uh, he kind of stayed back to uh, to argue for a foul call that that was not given. This is a forgettable two minutes for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah of course, but Luca would never do that. You know, he's a he's, a, he's very chill with refs. Very chill, mm-hmm. indeed. Yeah, I, it, they also see. Oh, sorry, they also seem to be picking guys up full court more. Maybe that's his real recency bias because they did it all game last night, but. Like Josh Richardson or Maxi Kaliba, like those guys are always pressuring the inbound pass, which just that extra like one and a half seconds helps you get set, especially if you have a guy like Luca who's never trying to move too fast. You know, it just lets you get back a little more. Last season, like especially, oh my God, I mean, they were, they would give up like one or two easy layups off a made basket per game. And that adds up over the course of a season. If you just take away those two points per game, like you go from 18th to top 10. Like it's, yeah, that's how narrow the margins are. And that's one you should stop. It, it, you know, a team lighting you up from three, there's a lot of randomization in opponent shooting. You can be a good three-point defense, but it won't stop teams from, you know, just shooting and hitting shots and hitting tough shots because it's, it's, there's some randomization to that. Um, in fact, I'm not sure good defense, good three-point defenses are ones that limit where the three-pointers come from and the amount of them. It's not so much you can do by, you know, there will be just be times where, where people hit shots against you. Um, I, I think that all the analytics guys consistently say there's no such thing as letting the right shooter shoot. Maybe you can do it for a game, but over the course of a season, uh, you know, players are going to get shots and they're just too good at shooting for it not to bite you sometimes, even when you've perfectly defended it. So that's that's just a brief aside off, off uh, something you said, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it, too, is just like. If you take a step back, you look at the big picture of what this roster is, you know, especially once they made the the Curry for Richardson swap, you know, and we'll, we'll adjudicate that for the rest of the year, I'm sure. But just strictly from a defensive perspective, even if what Josh Richardson, even if he isn't what his reputation sometimes is, he's still a solid defensive player and he's still a solid defensive upgrade over Seth Curry. And so if you look at this roster and you, you factor in that swap from last year, you factor in Luka, you know, I wouldn't say leveling up to a consistently great defender, but he's not a liability anymore. I feel pretty confident saying that out of the guys who are consistently playing, it's a bunch of average to above average to, you know, maybe there's, you know, a guy like a Jalen or a Tim Hardaway, you know, they're not going to help you up, but they're not going to hurt you. You know, Porzingis when he's at his best can be a legitimate game changer. And obviously we've, you know, we've seen the conversation about that evolve over the last year about what he is, what he isn't. But the bottom line is, I don't know how many, and we'll, we'll use the Tim Cato favorite phrase here. I don't know how many ceiling raisers they have defensively right now, but it's a lot of high floor guys. There are, and when you have, and a lot of them are smart too. This is a smart team. So when you have a lot of guys who are smart, you have a very intelligent head coach, and you just don't have liabilities on the floor. That's a recipe for at least not an atrocious defense like we saw in February. You know, if we're talking about maybe it is as simple as just guys getting comfortable, guys getting over ha- getting over having COVID, this team not having preseason, learning how to play together. I don't know. Again. If the bar is contending in the postseason, I don't know how many of these guys are as good as you want them to be to defend championship caliber players. But if the goal is to be better than you were defensively and not be liabilities, they don't field too many of them on the floor right now. And 
you know, sometimes their strength is just not having too many weaknesses. And that's, to me, sometimes what this Mavericks team feels like. Yeah, they have in their starting lineup now, outside of KP, sorry, Tim, outside of KP, their usual starting lineup is Luca Richardson, Finney Smith, Maxi Kalibo. Now, you know, the three of those guys are, I would say, at least above average defenders. And then Luca is typically average to maybe slightly above average some nights. But all four of those guys can switch pretty much any screen, pretty much any time, pretty much any place on the floor. So there's just a lot more fluidity uh, defensively in their lineup and a lot more like freedom, a lot more things they can do. And maybe that was part of it too in February because Maxi was like a late arrival to the starting lineup. So I wonder if they were just working out some of the kinks on like when and where to switch. But now they can pretty much do whatever they want and sort of mix and match their assignments on guys at the start of possessions and in between in the middle of possessions and uh, create favorable matchups that way. So I mean, and and I guess more importantly, avoid unfavorable matchups. So maybe that has something to do with it too. You know, I know like Dallas has always wanted more three and D wings, and like fans have always wanted more three and D wings. But now they have. I mean, Richardson and Finney Smith, like the three is a little inconsistent at times, but like all three of those guys, those two and Maxi Kaliba are like extremely good, versatile defenders. So I feel like that's a, a been a huge kind of realization for them, uh, kind of moving it's that direction. It's definitely what season. Carlisle likes about Melly too, is is not that he is a quite a Maxi Kleba level athlete, but he can facsimilate that a little bit. You know, he is a smart, he's smart at moving his feet and then he's just big. I think it's still underrated, you know, when you can put skilled big people on the floor, you know, who can move their feet. That's a good thing. Like that helps you. There's a reason that this sport used to be dominated by seven plus footers. And, you know, the this the skill invasion, if you will, of the past two decades has has made it harder for the ones who can't move their feet side to side to to stay in the league. But it's still good to have good players, you know, tall players on the court. Uh, and, and so we'll see. We'll see if Melly can actually hit shots. But um I think that's that's the only concern I have with him. But uh, otherwise, he looks like a s- smart and and decent rotation player, especially with that uh, just solid defense, you know. Yeah, I think that my early, I, I suppose for me the realistic hope, and I'm stressing realistic. Maybe he maybe he gets beyond this, but my early realistic hope for Melly is to essentially be what you know archetypically what Willie Cauley Stein is to how Dwight Powell used to be before the Achilles injury, and still could be at some point. But for now, we're staying used to be. In that, you know, Willie is not going to consistently give you what he does game in, game out. But there is once, maybe twice a week where Willie looks really good doing those Dwight Powellish things. I don't think it's fair to expect Melly to be Maxi Kleba. But if he's having a game or two a week where he approximates that and gives you an actual alternative to that or, you know, some facsimile of that when Maxi's off the floor, then that's a win right there. Because again, we, we talked about this last time, but... Melly, in a lot of ways, is the third component of this deal. Redick being the first, getting off of Wundu's money is the second. So if the third component of this deal is giving you something to approximate, you know, one of the more unique role players in the game, even just once or twice a week, that's a nice piece for Rick to be able to throw out there. Yeah, and it matters in the playoffs, too. I mean, what if you're going up against a team that played like Houston last year that has a bunch of small guys? Well, you don't want to use your size, but what if you're going up against the Lakers, you know, that have AD and then they play Montrezl Harrell or whatever. Like, sometimes you're going to need size. So, Melly can play with the big boys. But, like, last night he guarded Bojan Bogdanovic really well, I thought. So, I mean, I wonder if his utility in a playoff series would only be limited to playing against big teams or if he could also play <laughs> against the small teams too. Uh, I guess we'll see. But, 
I mean, heck, I don't know. It's it's not too bad to stumble upon 2021 Brian Cardinal. We haven't talked enough about Luca in this podcast, just generally, so I want to close it out with that. Uh, right before we do that, I want to put some spotlight on Mike Vellucci, uh, who is part of this killer new project. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, see you I, I was, I was waiting. I was, I was anticipation. I did not know you were putting a spotlight on me. I have baited breath too, Tim. <laughs> yeah, what are, we, what are we doing here? So I'm, I'm excited to, to share with you a new podcast from The Athletic. It's called Shattered, Hope, Heartbreak, and the New York Knicks. It's a documentary-style podcast on the past 20 years of the Knicks, uh, hosted by hip-hop legend Chuck D from Public Enemy. And, and I know I'm going off script here, but Pellucci, Mike, you were heavily involved in this project in, in several ways, more on the writing side. Did you meet Chuck D? How many phone am, calls? Just like every I, night, I, I imagine, like hour-long phone calls being like, this isn't, we need more details. I mean, what come next? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm on the next Public Enemy album. I'm just saying that there's a non-zero chance. Um, no, I'm, I am actually not on the pod itself so much as I'm running. Every week we're doing editorial content at The Athletic in conjunction with this podcast. Uh, I'm the person running all of that. So today we had a really awesome story uh, by Rustin Dodd about Charles Oakley and the night that he got thrown out of the garden and also sort of the legacy of, of Oak. But I have, you know, been in a whole lot of production meetings and I have read scripts for these episodes. It's really good. Whether you're a Knicks fan, whether you're not, if you just love basketball, it's an awesome journey. I mean, they got Patrick Ewing, they got Dave Checkets, they got tons of players and executives and really just breaking this down from a variety of angles. It's just super well done. It's the first big audio documentary we're doing at The Athletic. Um, there will be more to come, I'm sure, but it's exciting. If you love basketball and you don't listen to this podcast, if you don't, uh, whatever your feelings about the New York Knicks are, you should check this thing out. Mike, what's your what's your favorite uh, what's your favorite Knicks heartbreak? Favorite Knicks heartbreak? Um, well, just to list the ones that are in here, and and I'll let you you pick. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. There what, you go. what caused the end of the '90s Knicks? What it's like being banned from the Garden? The Knicks failing to sign LeBron James in the summer of the decision? Um, Carmelo Anthony and Jeremy Lin not coexisting? Oh man. Uh, David Fisdell and Christos Porzingis. So th- there's a direct Mavs ties. Uh, and, and then just even like Garden Insider, just saying what it's like to work for James Dolan. Yeah, that's a fun one. There's some you know, there is a Mavs one. tie. Can I, if I can say this, there is a Mavs tie to the connection of uh, the downfall of Lin Sanity. Go back and watch whenever the Knicks came to Dallas during the 2011-2012 season. The Mavs are creaming the Knicks. Melo comes out of the game. Jeremy Lin comes in. The Knicks go on a huge run to come back into the game. I think maybe even took the lead. And then Melo's kind of like on the bench like, am I going to come back in the game or not? And so he did come in the game, and the Mavs ended up winning because they went away from Lin and went back to Melo. So anyway, pretty interesting moment. And I was like, my my 20-year-old brain, maybe I was just like, you know, uh, really into conspiracy theories or something. But I was like, yeah, this is not going to work. And sure enough, it didn't. So that is the Mavs connection to uh, Lin Sanity. Clearly, you also should have been interviewed, uh, maybe right after the Andrew Yang interview. Uh, yeah, that, thanks that for the invite, Mike. Now I know who to blame. <laughs> hey, well, new episodes of Shattered are released every Tuesday. Search for Shattered, Hope, Heartbreak, and the New York Knicks, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, again, just Luca. I, I, don't, I don't know specifically what I want to say. I just feel like it is a disservice to the listener. And this is a two-way street. I'm always here for the listener. This is this is our podcast. This is their podcast. Our our podcast. Uh, this is not my podcast. So I want I want Bobby Corrala. I want you to talk about Luka Doncic. That, that it's it's your thing. It's what you do best. Oh man, that is quite an introduction. Now I have to deliver. 
Uh, <laughs> just feel your feelings, that, Bobby. Just feel those feelings. Yeah. When he hits the step back, it's just a it's it's such a cheat code because you know I felt like Royce O'Neal did a really good job against him. I thought that Marcus Smart did a really good job against him. And I've thought that a lot of other teams have done a really good job against him this season, but it just doesn't matter because if he can hit that step back at a 50% rate or whatever it's been for the last couple months, then he's still going to score 35. It might take him 20 shots to get there instead of 15, but you're going to lose. you know. And, and that is the most – it's been such a crucial uh, development for him this season because for as amazing as he's been the first two years of his career – we were always kind of thinking, well, yeah, but what if he could just hit the three? Like, what wouldn't that be funny? Like, as a joke, like he should just do it one time. But he's been doing it for like just three months now. Yeah, yeah, just as a bit, just make you know, make me laugh. Like, just see if it'll work. And it has. He's been unbelievable. And the the crazy thing about it, I think, is that it hasn't really even opened up that many other elements of his game. Like, I thought if he would be hitting threes like this, that guys would just be selling out. But they're still letting him take the three. So I wonder if he does it for another year or two, what happens then? Now I'm like, I'm already thinking of the next thing. Um, but right now, with the groove that he's in, he is just completely unguardable. And it's almost like, it, in in the midst of games, I'm always thinking, if he goes like two possessions without either shooting or setting someone else up for the shot, I can like feel myself getting anxious. I'm like, all right, it's time. Like, let Luca do his thing. And uh, to already be feeling that way about like a 21-year-old is just unbelievable. But yeah, I mean, I don't really have many other things to say about him that I haven't said or that you guys haven't said or that people haven't thought. I mean, I'm just like in disbelief whenever I watch him play right now because he's he's on he's just at such a high level right now. And like who in the history of basketball is averaging 30 points a game for like two months and shooting like 45% from three nine assists, nine boards, whatever it's been, scoring around the rim. Like, he shoots at the rim like he's Giannis. He shoots from three like he's Steph. Like, how do you guard that guy? And he passes like he's, you know, Trey Young or Pistol Pete. Like, he's just unstoppable. And he, this version of Luka is probably the most unstoppable offensive force in the NBA because he can beat you at the rim from three with the pass, in the post, off the bounce, in the mid-range, fadeaways, step-throughs, up-and-unders. Like, he has the entire package, and it's just – it is a pleasure to get to watch him every night. I'm just confused why you were asking that last question rhetorically, as I've always referred to you as the human basketball reference search. feels like you well, should you should I be able to pop that. those qualifiers and do the brain, run the, run the engine – Maybe be like, uh, turns out no one has. Or Yeah, the I, answer is nobody. The answer yeah. is nobody. I mean, this season he's averaging like 40 points per 100 possessions, like 15 rebounds and 12 assists. or just something like, just something insane. And um, it's just, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no other way to put it. He is just like, this is a once-in-a-lifetime player that we're seeing right now. So my one actual takeaway was actually the same as yours, that it's interesting that players and defenses have not sold out to that three-pointer they're really just letting him take it i think that's the right move even if he's hitting 40 percent. i think him shooting threes is still going to be better than him barreling down the lane when he is a an elite finisher or he can you know kick it to the right player and uh, it is a really interesting question to see if people start changing as they see him hitting more and more and more of them your psyche as a defender changes and, and all of a sudden you you feel like you do have to close out closer on him and, and harder to him and, and all those things but 
I, at some level, I think a, a Luka Doncic drive is just too valuable to be eclipsed, even as a even by a forty percent shooter, uh, which is the scariest thing about him. What do you? I, and I don't have the answer to this myself right now. I'm still calibrating, but I would like to hear you guys' thoughts. What do you think he is as a true talent three point shooter right now? Like, what percent do you think? Yep, that's about where I think he realistically is at this point in time. Well, so much of that Ooh, is, is kind of described by volume, though, right? I mean, it depends on, you know, based on his the exact shots he's taking right now. Yeah. I mean, he feels like he puts in like two of five, you know, maybe a little bit less than that. Um, it, you also got to remember, like he he has attempts. He hasn't really had heaves this year, but he certainly has attempted fouls drawn that go down as right. so, attempts. So what per, so what percentage would you put on it then? Would you say what, what do you think is his true talent three point shooting percentage? I mean, on his on his current shot shot, uh, you know, the ones he's taking right now. I mean, he feels like he's about forty percent. Um, it, I guess the one big question about that is just that he has a history of running out of steam a little bit towards the end of seasons, even going back to Real Madrid. And even though he's only been getting better throughout this season, I, I don't think it's impossible. You know, the conditioning is a huge factor here. Um, but yeah, as a, as a as a talent guy, like based off what we've seen over the past few months, forty percent for sure. Yeah, at least league average, if not slightly above, which is what, 37, 38, something right. like that. But his, his shot just looks better, too. That's the big thing, especially on the left wing. Like, he just gets his legs into a shot so much more whenever he's in a groove than he normally has throughout his career, especially like by the end of his rookie season, he's taken nine or 10 threes a game and they're all front rim. I mean, he just had nothing. The shot was flat. Like, a lot of them just didn't even have a chance to go in. But now he's getting his legs into a shot. He's releasing with a really solid flick of the wrist, and so it's always nothing but net. It's it's and it, it just when it's high and soft like that, that's the Dirk school. Like he's getting a lot of bounces, even in, in the mid range and everywhere. I mean, he's just he has really good touch and always has. But whenever you can uh, like mix top that one with, or two touch in the league, I, w- I would say yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, like it's in all in all sincerity, he gets the friendliest of bounces. Um, but when his legs are in the shot and the shot has an arc like that with his touch, it's just it's. It looks really, really good coming out of his hands. And even though he still kind of has the the natural tendency to sort of fade away as he's shooting them, you can still tell whenever the shot has a chance because coming out of his hand, it just is it's on the right arc. You know, whenever he's front rimming everything, it's always just really flat and uh, he doesn't get a good deep knee bend or anything. And I think the most impressive thing about it is because so many of these are off the dribble, like he, it's not like he has a lot of time to get himself set. So he's like creating space by doing the splits to get into this step back shot and then getting way down and then coming up and releasing a high arcing beautiful shot like it's just it's incredible to see i mean steph is like all with the hands he doesn't really even bend his legs at all but like luca has to bend into a shot uh in order to get a really good uh really good uh attempt off but he's done it i mean so whenever he's shooting it like this yeah i'm surprised when he misses but uh on, on a normal like a normal late season Luka Doncic timeline when by now he's starting to front rim everything. I mean, it, it can get pretty ugly, but right now, I mean, he's just, he's very, very deep in his bag. That's some real shooter positivity. All, mm. all jump shots, all types of jump shots can be beautiful in their own ways. It can. Jump they shot can. inclusivity right here. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. We are the, we are the most jump shot inclusive podcast. The, Listen, man, Sean Marion won a title here. How can we not be Jump shot inclusive. <laughs> That's a man that yeah, had a high arcing jump shot too. It was incredible. He shot it from his belly button and it still had it still went like twenty feet in the air. It was amazing. 
Bobby, last question I'll ask you, because if anybody knows the answer to this, uh, it's going to be you. Did Sean Marion hit a single jump shot during that, that 2011 title run? Like, like not, not even three-pointer. I know I'm positive he didn't hit a three-pointer. Did he shoot anything from outside of like 10 feet? I, he must have like thrown up a floater, but... Oh, yeah, man, yeah, he had back. he had some floaters against the Lakers. Uh, he had some floaters against the Lakers, and he had a floater during the game two comeback in Miami. Uh, he had a little That's runner right. that he banked in off the glass. Uh, that always surprises me whenever I see it go in because it it like it just is such a funky little runner. Um, but then also Rick Carlisle commonly called post ups for him uh, for Marion. Usually he'd get one in the first half and one in the second half, typically in the fourth quarter, and he did make those little turnaround baby hook a pretty high degree of regularity i don't know if they were outside of 10 feet but he did jump while he shot it so i'm going to count that as a jump shot this is uh this is bringing back memories so well we're approaching the 10 year anniversary tim so there's a free idea for a podcast for the next audio documentary (laughs) mike there you go Listen, you're, I will gladly devote audio space to, to Sean Marion. As somebody who appreciated him and loved him back in the Phoenix days and still thinks he's the most underrated player of his generation, I'm all for giving Sean Marion some due on this pod. It's 2021 and this guy still is not in the Hall of Fame. What are we doing? What are we doing? It's it's time. It's it's time for Marion to go in the Hall of Fame. It's uh, time for us to wrap. Bobby, I appreciate it. Uh, Mike, uh, appreciate it. Always Please be do nice listen to the, the Knicks doc legitimately. I'm, I'm really We'll be back next week with uh, some more Mavericks talk as we do.